Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 21. A lot of themes swirling in, in worship this morning that kind of tie into what we're talking about. Um, let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would, uh, the, the time that we have here in your word, that you just take uh, already what has been proclaimed in your spirit and you would just minister to our hearts um, even further, Lord. I want to thank you so much. Um, your love has no boundaries. You go anywhere, everywhere, and you um, invade the darkness with your light. And Lord, you do it through uh, your love, you do it through your gospel, you do it through people. And Lord, I just ask that as we all have plans and we all have our lives kind of mapped out in our heads, um, that we would just be submitted truly to your sovereign plan within our lives. That when things take turns, when things don't go as we expect, Lord, um, that your love would be a chain around us, your grace would be a chain around us that we couldn't shake free. And so, Lord, as we uh, do this now, Lord, as we come to your word, just open up our hearts, illuminate your word to our spirits. In the name of Jesus, amen. So, if you remember in Acts uh, 20, Paul stopped briefly to address the elders of Ephesus, a little south of Ephesus at Miletus on his way to Jerusalem. And we extended his stay for about a month or so. So it took a little longer than probably his afternoon there, uh, but we did take a little time. But it was an emotional departure to say the least at the end of chapter 20. It says in verse 37, 38, it says, they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved the most was a statement that they would never see his face again. And, and the reason that they are never going to see his face again is that Paul is determined to go to Jerusalem, drop off this gift, and then immediately go to Spain. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to go to Spain via Rome. It's like Paul had this idea to go to Spain. You ever, ever anybody had these ideas and these thoughts, and, and that's just going on, what's going on in your head? And, uh, well, that was what was in Paul's mind, and he wrote about it. At the end of Romans 15, it gives us a snapshot of Paul's plans. Romans being written just a short time before his departure here. He's at the end of his third missionary journey. He's headed back towards Jerusalem. And, and as he's leaving that province of Asia, he penned some pretty impressive books. And one was Romans, probably when he was in the city of Corinth for three months. So he just so happened to bust out Romans. I mean... Romans is an awesome book. If you ever read Romans, you just go, oh my gosh. He just uh, did that in his free time. And so in Romans 15, 23, 28, he's writing to the church in Rome. He says, but now that there's nowhere place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through to have you assist me on my journey there. And after I've enjoyed your company for a while, so now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there for Macedonia and, and Achaia, that's that Asia, area of Greece. Uh, they were pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in Jewish, the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share them with their material blessings. And so after I have completed this task... And have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. That's Paul's mindset here as we're going forward. He's going Spain, Spain, Spain. I'm going to reach people I've never reached before. 
I've, I've spent the last, I don't know, a couple decades here in this area, and in the gospel's been preached in this whole area. Churches are established. Elders are raised up. I'm going to Jerusalem. Now I'm going to Spain, for crying out loud. How many of you planned for the things that you want to do in your life for the kingdom of God? How many of you say, Lord, I want to go tackle this? And what's interesting is that quite often God puts those things within our hearts. But how they actually work out is another story. Paul's thinking he's going to Jerusalem and getting on a boat and going to Spain via Rome. That's not what's happening. He is going to go to Rome. He won't make it to Spain, but it's going to be in chains, in suffering. Boy, life has a way of giving us turns. Even in the great things we want to do for the Lord, sometimes things are left unfinished. Sometimes things are are very difficult getting there. And as a Christian, somehow we think that that following Christ, I, I mean... When things go difficult, we go, gosh, I must be out of your will, or, oh gosh, you know, this must not be your plan because it involves hardship. Anybody there? Lord, this is invading my time. Uh, Your plan has to fit within these hours, Lord. I don't know, I've been there. But so Paul, after three missionary journeys spanning many years, he's now leaving that province, and he's he's going to Rome. He's going to go to Spain in his mind. You've got to love Paul. But there also comes a, a price uh, of, of following the Lord is, is quite often uh, there's pain involved. Uh, separation of relationships. You know, Paul having to leave this fellowship that he has enjoyed for three years and just never see these people again. And he's just going on a tour of of seeing people that he's never will see again. That's got to be just heartbreaking. And it shows just real deep connection and really real deep love between these people. And so it says in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 21, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. And so Luke is here, he's writing this, this book, and he's a first-hand account. He's a doctor, so he's given a lot of details, and he's saying, man, we tore ourselves away. And, and there's only one word in the Greek for tore ourselves away. It's the idea of unsheathing. In other words, something that's supposed to be so connected, it gets pulled apart. And so that's, that's the heart here. They're just being torn apart. And so they depart. And so Paul and Luke and those emissaries from the Gentile churches, the non-Jewish churches and ages, are headed southeast on their way to Jerusalem to give that financial gift to the church who were poor, and then off to Spain. Well, the next day, uh, when uh, we went to Rhodes, and from there to Petara, verse 2, we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. And after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo, and we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Quite often that process could take a while. And, and, and it says, through the Spirit, while they're there in Tyre, they sought out the disciples, and through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, make note of that, but when it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray And after saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship 
and they returned home. And so just another heartbreaking situation where he's moving on and saying goodbye to people. Now, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, there's a question that arises in verse 4. And you might go, so what? But this is pretty important. Um, We have disciples through the Spirit, through the gift of prophecy, urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And and some of you have a different translation in IV or in New King James. My New King James Bible that I study out of says that they told Paul not to set foot in Jerusalem. And so, which is it? And urging not to go? Like, really, we don't want you to go? Like, because bad things are ahead? Or is it, don't set foot in Jerusalem? The translators are trying to pull a concept into English that is just not clear. And so, depending on how that is interpreted, you'd ask the question, is Paul being disobedient to God by continuing to go on? If the Spirit is saying, don't go to Jerusalem, and he's going to Jerusalem, then we've got a problem. Paul is being bullheaded, and and he's just going to do what he's going to do. He's got something in his mind, correct? So, is he being disobedient to the Spirit? Or is he being obedient to the Spirit that's just letting him know that hardships are ahead. And so just to let you know, great Bible teachers, they think differently on this. I don't want to go into great detail, but J. Vernon McGee, for example, on one side, and uh, you know, Ray Steadman on the other. So a lot of great people see this differently. So those who believe that Paul's determined to go to Jerusalem and is disobeying the Lord would say that verse 4 here clearly says that the Spirit is saying, don't go. Right? So that could very well be in people who love the Lord and study his words, they see it differently. But I don't take that position. I take the right position, which is that Paul is actually obeying the Lord. And, for, and I've got two, two reasons, a few reasons. We can go in deeper. But first, Paul said back in chapter 20, verse 22, says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Now, even that's translated weird. Get ready. This is pastor fun, ready? I know some of you guys are going, so what? This makes a difference, okay? So in the NIV, it says that Paul is compelled by the Spirit, but it also can be translated in some of your New King James versions or whatever, chained to the Spirit. And the question is, is it doesn't identify which Spirit. Is he talking about the Numa, the human Spirit, or the Numa, the, the, the Holy Spirit? So is his Spirit compelling him to go forward? Or is he chained to the Holy Spirit and they're going forward? Or are they both working together? I don't know. Why is that important? Because is Paul obeying or disobeying God? And do you see how great people can see a view of, not great people, me, me, I'm thinking of these other people, uh, can see uh, the scriptures and, and have a differing view on it. Do you see that? And so, I believe he's saying, I'm chained to the Holy Spirit. I believe that, that, that gives testimony to what he's been saying all along. The second reason why I believe it is the message given by the prophets to Paul are all summed up by Paul in chapter 20, verse 23, where he says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen to me there, only know, the only thing I know is that in every city, and so he gives a, 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 a synopsis of what he's being told by the Spirit, in every city, what happens? The Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. That is what the Spirit is saying in every city. 
And so I take that verse to interpret verse 4, where he's saying, don't go. In other words, it's going to be trouble. That's how, what I hold. But you go be Bereans and figure it out yourself. But so I believe that's what he's saying in verse 22. It tells us the Spirit was telling him in every city that if he goes, you're going to face hardship. And that lines up with what Agabus says, and that lines up with what happened to him. So I, I, I kind of follow on that thing if you don't get it. So that would be the correct position. And then, no, I'm just kidding. There's two sides, my side, your side, and the right side, right? <laughs> so they urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And this is not an issue of salvation. Amen? So we can view things differently. That's great. And, and I would encourage you to be a Berean. And this is kind of something I, I, I want to talk about. Um, my heart is that we as a church go to the Word of God first and primer. And we start digging in the Word. We start reading through the Word. And as we start reading to the Word and we come to things we don't understand... Then, from there, we go to people who have understanding. Does that make sense? And so what I do personally is, is, is I'm reading the Bible, I'm going through Scripture, and all of a sudden I come to this issue, and I'm going, well, how is that? What? I've got, I'm kind of, Houston, we've got a problem here. I don't understand something. Then I go to people who see it, and I start discussing the, I start discovering, I go to commentaries, I start reading different sides of who views what, and I start finding out even what the sides are. And then I'm praying about it. But actually, the first thing I do is to do a Greek word study. Secondly, I'm praying over it. Thirdly, I go to commentaries. Fourth, I'm talking to people. And fifth, if I don't come to an understanding in my heart, and it's not really that important, I go, okay, Lord, show me in your time. Move on. Amen? But to be able to go there and, and to, to, um, to do that is, is very important, and not just to skim over these things. But for Paul, it was, it was very difficult going from city to city. And having these prophets, and this is the thing that keeps saying, is that every city is going to. Can you imagine every city? You're trying to do what God's telling you to do, and every city you run into, people of the Lord saying, man, you got hardship ahead of you. It's just a hard road. I don't want you to go. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And you have people crying and begging. That's really difficult. You ever had a you know, the Lord tell you to do something, you step out in it, and, and a lot of people around you love you, and they go, man, that's just, it's taking a toll on you. Just really don't like that. Don't like what's happening to you there. And there can be a lot of truth in that. But knowing whether or not the Lord has called you to something is very important. But Paul was, I believe, determined to minister to the saints in Jerusalem. That, that gift was more important than his own well-being. That his desire to love that church and to express that love from all these churches to that hurting people was more important than his own very life. And he was determined to do that. Verse 5, let's move on. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including the wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. And after saying goodbye to each other, we went on aboard the ship and they returned home. Verse 7, we continued on our voyage from Tyre. So they're in the Mediterranean coast there, just above uh, uh, Lebanon. And, uh, and they landed in Ptolemais, and where they were greeted by brothers and sisters. 
and stayed with them for a day and leaving the next day. Boy, Luke is documenting everything, isn't he? Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at a house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And so remember Philip, one of the seven guys who was chosen, Acts chapter 6, to wait tables. Men full of the Holy Spirit, chosen to wait tables. Well, that's a powerful thing. If you remember, he, he left there and he went and started ministering to Samaria. You don't minister to the Samaritans if you're a Jew. He did that. And then Simon the sorcerer was there. And remember, he, then after that, he went down to Egypt and he was talking to uh, the eunuch. He came alongside of the Ethiopian eunuch down there in Gaza. And what happened after that? He just disappeared. Well, he reappeared here in Caesarea, apparently. Now he has four kids. Four, yeah, pretty neat story there. So that's the rest of the story. He's in Caesarea's unmarried daughters who prophesy, and I bet you what they're prophesying at dinner. Paul can't get a break. It's going to be rough, Paul. Well, verse 10, to make matters better, it says, After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, Thus saith the Lord, New Testament prophecy, deal with it. Gosh, that's hard for me, isn't it? You see a New Testament prophet saying, Thus saith the Lord. This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, if I'm sitting down to dinner and a guy walks in, takes my belt, ties his hands and feet, and says, This is what's going to happen to you, I'm telling him to leave. But this is how the New Testament church operated. Everywhere they went, the people that were chosen, how they separated Paul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry. Where do they go to the north? Where are they going to go to the south? It was through the gift of the prophecy. The church was built upon the apostles and the prophets. We think Old Testament prophets. I think that's true, but I'm thinking these guys. And this is really important. They're very influential in the church, and they're very powerful because there's two aspects of prophecy. One is forth-telling, telling you how it is, repent and all that type of stuff. We see that in the Old Testament. But the other aspect of it, which we kind of feel weird about, is foretelling. And they would say things in the Spirit about what would happen. And the question is, is that gift still happening today? I believe it is. But a prophet cannot contradict Scripture, and this is really important. Deuteronomy 13 goes into great depth on this, how a prophet who prophesies, it must come true, first of all. And if, in fact, they're speaking on God's behalf, and even if it does come true, guess what can't happen? It can't lead people away from God. So it's possible for the enemy to say things and have supernatural knowledge of things to deceive people and lead them away from God. Do you see that? And so it's not only that what they say comes true, it's actually does it lead you towards the Lord? That's very important in prophecy because they are very influential in the early church. Peter in 2 Peter, uh, he warns the flock against false prophets and just unloads on them. Here's some words for, for you to, uh, if you decide to take up the um, vocation of false prophets. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, Peter says, These people are springs without water, and mist driven by a storm, blackest darkness is reserved for them. Seriously, seriously, serious stuff. Very influential within the church. 
Could you imagine if we had a person in our church that was a prophet and then they spoke actually came to pass time after time after time after time. Do you know how easy it would be to influence people and to move people to the left and the right? Very interesting. It's getting cold in here, guys. Right? Speak it. These people are springs without water, mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. I do not want that room. I don't want that place. I don't want that reservation. Lord, help. So prophecy is directing much of the affairs of the early church, where they should go, what they, do, what they should do. It was a big deal. And the Spirit is saying through Agabus, you're going to suffer at the hands of the Jews who will hand you over to the Gentiles. And so Agabus must be right and in line with what the Lord already said. And Jesus said that Paul would suffer. And so here we are, verse 12. And when he heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. When they heard that, they said, man, don't let this happen. This is bad. And so Agabus, who had already prophesied that great famine back in Acts chapter 11, says, says Paul is going to be imprisoned by the leaders in Jerusalem. And Luke and all the people there, uh, they believe it, and they're begging. They are begging Paul not to go. And you can just see the love and concern. Now, some people, you're like, okay, why don't you go ahead and go on that trip? <laughs> right? <laughs> they love Paul. They love Paul. They didn't want any harm to come to him. So verse 13, we're moving along. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm I'm ready not only to be bound, which is what is being prophesied, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You're concerned that I'm being bound. He said, I'm ready to do that. I'm ready to die. That's how serious I am for the Lord. How would you like that for a bumper sticker? I'm not only ready to be bound in Walla Walla, but to die for the Lord Jesus. Wow, what a testimony. So the prophecies are about him being chained and imprisoned. And Paul's response was, man, why are you breaking my heart? There's an emotional appeal, but he he doesn't give in to that. He goes, verse 14, and when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. And after this, we started on our way to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh. There's probably some silent thing in there I don't know about. Where we were to stay. And he was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. And when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. So he gets to Jerusalem. It says they received us warmly. I really think that's the way, the church's way of saying thank you for the gift. There's a lot of humility in there. In verse 18, they didn't mention the gift, right? Verse 18, the next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. And so there's this unofficial greeting. And the next day, the church leadership headed by James, Jesus' half-brother, they all meet. Now, if you notice, there's a leadership transition. Back in Acts chapter uh, 15, what was it? Or I can't remember exactly. Um, they had the first council. And if you remember in the first council, it was the apostles in James and the elders. Now that's, it's just James and the elders. Where are the apostles? Jesus said what to them? Go 
into all the world and preach the gospel. So they goed. They went. Matt went to, Matthew, sorry. Matthew uh, went to Ethiopia, Andrew to Greece, Mark to Egypt, Peter to Rome, Bartholomew to India, and Thomas to India. And there's a lot more there, but I'm not going to go into it. But they all got, went. Simon the Zealot, interesting. I think they said he went to Africa and even Britain. So these guys traveled and so on. But now it's James, that half-brother of Jesus and the elders Paul's meeting. And it's Acts 15. And so remember back in Acts 15 where there was a problem with the church. They were telling him, hey, you've got to be circumcised. The Jews were coming into the Gentile church telling him you've got to be circumcised. You've got to be under the law and all this stuff. And what happens? They said, well, you've got to go to Jerusalem and figure this out. So they go to the council and it was that group of guys who said, don't listen to that. You don't need to do all that. Just don't eat stuff, sacrifice to idols, and stay away from sexual immorality, and you'll do well. See ya. Now fast forward. The apostles are gone, and now just James and the elders are the leadership. And this is how it transitions. Elders are to be the leaders appointed over the church. Paul tells Titus in, first, in Titus 1.5, he says, the reason why I left you here is that you would appoint elders over all the cities within the church. And that's what happens. James is the head guy among the elders. He's the spokesman. He's the one who kind of has the final say, but he's a, and it's within a plurality of leadership here. And so the churches see that differently. And Paul gives an account of what God has been doing through his ministry to the elders in verse 19. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Notice Paul reported in detail all that who had done? God had done. How many of you turn on the TV and, and you hear all that man has done, what we're doing, and all the things I've got planned? Boy, that can only last so long. But Jesus called Paul, but he was submitted to the elders, and he told them all that God had done through his ministry. And it says, when they heard this, verse 20, they praised God. They praise God. Matthew 5, 6 says, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, do, when we serve the Lord in ministry, we're all in the ministry, remember? Who gets the glory? Who gets the praise? Who gets the worship? Do we, are we conscious of that? And it's a constant struggle, especially if you have a mouth gift, you know? Because you, you want to do things in a way that you share the glory with the Lord, right? Lord, look at we, what we are doing. And that's really dangerous. If you remember the son, uh, Aaron's sons, Aaron's sons, man, just Nadab and Abihu, they were, they just got initiated seven days out brought into the ministry and they went there standing and ministering before the Lord and they were sing, swinging what they called false fire. I won't go into it, but the way that they were ministering before the people did not accurately represent God. And guess what God did under that law? He smoked them. They died. And then, to make matters worse, Aaron, Moses tells Aaron, if you weep for them, you're next, buddy. Ministering before people and before the Lord is a, is a serious thing. God is holy and needs to be regarded as holy. His word is to be regarded as holy. And so it's very important that we don't touch the glory. That we don't touch the glory. God gets the glory. 
Amen? And so Paul's saying, look at all that God is doing. And the lens through everything he's doing is, look what God's doing here. Look what he's doing there. Look at, look at this. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. But God did work mightily, and he works through people. Amen? And they praise God upon here. And I can just imagine Paul's going over this scenario. He's going city by city, all the miracles and the things that happened, the people came, the riots, and yet God overcame, and the gospel still happened. And he's talking about serious hardship and serious blessing and the word of God taking root and the power and the manifestation of God's glory through the ministry of Paul. I mean, he's walking by and people are getting healed and people are burning their scrolls in the street and riots are happening and people are just throwing away their idols and hearts are being broken and and then there's uprisings and all this stuff and yet God is still triumphant through all and he puts a foothold in the hardest hearts. And and when they're hearing this, the, the Gentiles, oh my gosh, those people came to Jesus? Are you kidding? The Jews go, yes. And the church is rejoicing. And they praised God. And we should too. Anytime we see God working through someone, giving glory to God. But the elders are also, when they're hearing this, they also have got a concern. And that's what elders do. <laughs> they praise God, but they also go, oh, we got a problem here. And you can see Paul's zeal. You can see all the things. And he's Gentile, 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 God, God, God. And he's, where is he? He's in Jerusalem. The Middle East are serious about some things. You ever notice that? They don't have like demonstrations, <laughs> you know, out there with their signs. It gets very Middle Eastern. It's very serious. Very passionate group of people still are to this day. And so he says, they said to Paul, verse 20, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed? Look at what God's doing here too. And all of them are what? zealous for the law. You just came into Jew country, bud. You know you're a Jew. And they are zealous for the law. Just because they're born again does not mean that they are not walking in the ways of Moses. Very interesting. No doubt Paul had been relaying all those pagans coming to faith in Jesus and about the freedom and all the things that the church, James, had said, go tell them. They're not under the law, but this is. And now it's coming back home, the report. And he's going, okay, hold on. We've got a problem here. We have these people, thousands of Jews, who have come to faith in Christ. You've seen them, Paul, but they aren't Gentiles, as you know. And here's the catch. All of them are zealous for the law. They've come to faith in Christ, but they're still Jews. They keep the Sabbath. They observe the feast. They circumcise their children. All those things are still going on. And Paul had to tell Peter, I'm sorry, the Lord had to tell Peter three times that it was okay to eat unclean animals. He was a Jew. This is 10 years into post-Pentecost. Saved by grace, but he observed the law. And I can see James saying, I don't think they're there yet. Be careful. Your reputation, it precedes you. And so you see God working in saving the godless as well as the religious. Don't you love that about the Lord? He saves all of us. 
And to the godless, Paul would teach them to restrain from eating sacrificed uh, foods to idols for consciousness sake. And to Peter, what would he say to Peter? Go eat a ham sandwich. Go minister to the Gentiles. Very powerful stuff. It didn't happen overnight, growing in God's grace. But the problem is that people have already been speaking about Paul without Paul being able to represent himself. They've been speaking to the Jews there in Jerusalem, no doubt people from who opposed him in all these cities. They're back in Jerusalem for a feast, and they are giving the information on Paul without Paul being able to say what's really going on. Verse 21, they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? We're Jews. They will certainly hear that you have come. Now James and the apostles and the elders themselves already said in Acts chapter 15 that the Gentiles were not under the law, but they were, they, the reality is that they were going to be, uh, there's going to be trouble because in every city, Paul ran in, had these run in with Jews, right? And that news spread, and now the leadership is sensing this tension. He's saying, what do we do? What do you do? It's a hard spot. Leadership is not easy. Sometimes there's just no-win situations. Has anybody ever been there leading your family, leading a business, leading a church, pastoring situations that are just difficult, hard? You know there's just going to be hardships in prison ahead. But you've got to do the right thing. And so James is saying, what do we do? And he's saying it rhetorically. In other words, do you sense what's going on, Paul? I want you to do this. And he asks him to do something. He says, so do what we tell you. Submit to us as your leadership. Ready? And Paul, here's the mighty apostle. He submits to the leadership in Jerusalem. I love that about Paul, the humility. He says, there are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Okay, let's have fun. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. And so they were saying, Paul, please go through these cleansing rites and pay for these guys as a peace offering, so to speak, to these people that they would know you're, you're, you're one of us or you're a Jew. Now, is Paul compromising? That's the question I have. When I read that, I go, I don't know. And so then I start to do the word study, then I start to go to commentaries, find the difference, right? And pray about it. But in my study, this is what I think. I see Paul has such an amazing understanding of the grace of God. He was no more going to make a believing Gentile become a Jew than a believing Jew become a Gentile. That's my heart. And let me, let me unpack that for you. I know that's a heavy, heavy thought. Ready? I know it's kind of like, what? But I believe Paul speaks to this when he's addressing the church of Corinth and he's teaching them about love. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. 
Was a man already circumcised when he was called? Was he a Jew? He should not become uncircumcised, <laughs> obviously. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. It's a very important principle there. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Right? Each person should remain in the situation they were when God called them. In other words, if you were born a Jew and came to faith in Jesus and his grace, in, in his grace, you're keeping the Sabbath and the feast, not as a means of justification, but as worship towards God, you're free to do that. Praise the Lord. Just as a Gentile who came to Christ apart from those things is free not to keep them. I think Paul's heart here, this is difficult. A lot of different people see this differently. This is me just going, this is what I think and what I see. Go chew on it, okay? But I think Paul's heart here is keeping the, in keeping the cleansing rites, right? Is communicated in 1 Corinthians 9. Ready? And this is the meat of it. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, Right? To win as many as possible. What does that look like in Paul's time? To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though myself I am not under the law. Do you see that? So as to win those under the law. I'll shave my head, I'll go do whatever I need to do so that I might win some. Well, that's missionary 101. That's love. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. And he makes you want to be very clear here. He goes, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, the law of love. I'm not going to do anything that's going to be contrary to his character and in his his. In, in that. In other words, I, people will take this verse and they will say, therefore I will go sleep around because that's what the Gentiles did. I might win some. That is lunacy. It's not what he's talking about. In other words, I ate the food they ate. I hung out with them. I shared life with them. I looked like them. I dressed like them. I spoke in ways that they would understand. I quoted their, their poets that I might win some. Didn't Jesus do that with us? Did he not condescend from heaven, an incomprehensible culture to us apart from the Spirit, and became one of us to relate to us? See that heart working out? So as to win those not have the law, to the weak I became weak, to win the weak I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Does that make sense a little bit? I think that's why he did what he did. And so his, his life was a life of love and by the grace of God. And so that's kind of how chapter, the first part of chapter 121 ends. There. Let's stop. Because the next thing is there's a consequence, there's a price for it. And what's going to happen is from this point forward, Paul will no longer be a free man. 
He will no longer be a free man and never experience freedom. I mean, he might be, have house arrest and an ankle bracelet and get to run around a little bit, but he basically, he's going to be a prisoner from now until his death. And God will take him to Rome, but he has to go see kings. He has to be before kings, and he'll go before various ones, and he'll pray, proclaim the gospel to them, but not in the way that he wanted to. And so, um, what's the application of all this? I don't know. Um, there's just a thousand different angles. You know, the Christian life is hard. There are things that we must sacrifice and lay down so that we might win some. And that includes leaving people that we love and are connected to sometimes to go do things God has called us to do. That also means doing things that we wouldn't normally do so that we might win some. Going into people's houses, dressing, going to, just being a part of other people's lives in, in a way that we wouldn't normally. God's teaching me these things. But all of it, the motivation behind Paul is the cross. I am no longer my own, but I've been bought with a price. And the Lord Jesus, on the road to Damascus, said to Paul, Paul, you, basically he murdered the church, he persecuted him, and he chose that guy. Who would choose that guy? Choose the exact opposite of what you would go out and headhunt for. If you had a company and you wanted to go hide for someone, you'd find out all the qualifications, all this stuff. Not your arch enemy who seeks to undermine you every minute and kills your employees and all that stuff. Right? But Jesus goes and finds that guy, knocks him off his horse, and changes his life. And he said, I'm going to show you all the things that you must suffer for my name's sake. And believe me, that was, there was love in that. And Paul was changed from that moment forward. And his whole life was about the grace of God in his life, that what he could have been, that deepest darkness, was not his anymore. But now by the love of Christ, I'm going to go wherever and whatever you call me to do. I'm not my own. I've, I've, I've been lost in the cross. And that's the heart of Paul even in chains. And so I want to encourage you this morning as the church, just because it hurts doesn't mean it's not God. Amen? Get dirty. Not in moral filth. Get into the ministry. Minister. Lay it down. Love deeply. That's where you're going to find the joy in the pain. That's where you're going to find it, in sacrifice, as you identify with Jesus Christ. Speaking to myself. Amen? So, Lord Jesus, if you are our Lord, we ask that you'd speak to our hearts this morning. And that your grace would become more manifest in our lives. That we would be motivated, not out of um, all these other things but because we, we love you and because you first loved us. And that your heart is our heart, that you've taken that hard heart that was opposed to your kingdom and you've given us a new heart through grace. We couldn't earn it, but you came to us and you offered us your love and by your grace, you said, forgive us and you made us a new creation. I'm thankful for that.
And Lord, now you, you didn't just save us to save us. You saved us to serve. And so open our eyes to the mission field you have for us. How we too might be like Christ to lay down our lives so that others might live. And it's complicated. It's messy, Lord. Help us to make godly decisions, not based upon our kingdom, but yours and your word. And Lord, if chains and hardship are ahead, then so be it. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.